turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel. Daniel is one of those uh, books that there's a lot more to Daniel than meets the eye. Uh, we originally think of Daniel as kind of the way we teach it in Sunday school, right? You know, there's Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel standing firm, not going to eat fiery furnace. That's right. You know, so we're... It's a lot like David in that respect, isn't it? We kind of have this idea of who Daniel is based upon our Sunday school teachings and things. That, and those are all part of the Bible. They're all uh, they're all there for a reason. But how that fits into the overall uh, picture of Daniel is really what we want to introduce you tonight. So tonight, we're, uh, next week, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, chapter 1 includes the first 21 verses, I believe. Is that right? 1 through 21? I think that's what I was up to. Okay. So 1 through 7 is what we'll look at next week. This week, we just want to get an introduction. We want to get an overview, if you will, of what Daniel's really about. Now, Daniel is a young man who lived several thousand years ago. He's the last in the books known as the major prophets. Okay. Uh, anybody know what, why they're, what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet, other than just a couple stripes on their sleeve? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. There was. I just threw it in there that, that quickly. Okay. What's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? What's that? Yeah, it's really like how much scripture is uh, covered. Yeah, how much God gave them to say. Right. Yeah. So if you look at uh, who, are the, who are the major prophets, there's uh, four of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Okay, so we have those four. Now, you'd really impress me if you can name all the minor prophets. How many of those are there? Twelve. Anybody, anybody name the all minor? Okay. Woohoo! That's it. Years and years. Although, uh, did you guys see uh, little Zeke? First word, well, it's not his first word, but one of his first words is Bible. I loved it. Okay. All right. So Daniel basically has two parts, okay? The, there's the prophet and then the prophecies. There's, there's the first part is about the man. The second part is kind of about the message, if you however you want to coin those things, right? Uh, chapters 1 through 6 deal with the man. Chapter 7 through 12 are going to deal with the message. Uh, or chapters 1 through 6 deal with the prophet himself. One And 7 through 12 about the prophecies, uh, the writing style is very interesting because from chapter 2, verse 4, up until chapter 7, Daniel writes in the language of Aramaic, okay, Aramaic, uh, which you may recall there are sections of the New Testament in Aramaic as well, okay? Aramaic is one of the three languages that are written in the Bible. The Bible is translated in three different languages. We always think it's uh, Greek and Hebrew, but it's also Aramaic, okay, Aramaic. Uh, so he writes chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic, Aramaic, and those chapters are dealing with the Gentile kingdoms, okay? Then in chapter 7, and about midway through chapter 7, he starts writing to the Jews. So he starts off, you know, in Hebrew, so it switches over to Aramaic, then goes back to Hebrew again. Uh, so uh, the chapters that he does write in Aramaic are written in a style that was very consistent with 6th century uh, 
Aramaic, which would have been uh, 6th century B.C. So that would have been, remember, uh, in B.C., the smaller the number, the closer you're getting to Christ. Okay? So uh, 425 is actually closer than 725, right, as far as uh, newer, or closer to zero, if you will, closer to the New Testament. Okay. Now, Daniel the person, anybody know his name, what his name means? God is my, nope, nope, judge, very good, Daniel, God is my judge is what Daniel names, or what Daniel's mean, thank you so much, okay, here's what we do know about, uh, a couple things we know about him, he was intelligent, very intelligent actually, uh, because he not only knew Hebrew, uh, but he would have had to learn Aramaic also. So he, uh, and then he has some borrowed words in there for, in Greek also, which means there were probably other young men who were taken in previous captivities. They were all kind of mixed in and in this training type school, if you will, which we'll hear about later. Uh, and so they're probably, he probably picked up some key words in Greek as well, even though the Greek conquest didn't come till later. Okay. He was intelligent, well trained, and God fearing. So he used his gifts and talents to serve God and serve his captors as long as it did not interfere or compromise his faithfulness to God. And that was true about the people they hung out with also. They were the same. They were intelligent and they were uh, well-trained and they were God-fearing. As we can find that out as well. But the one evaluation that counts that's really, really important is Daniel chapter 10, verse 11. Let's look at that. Daniel chapter 10, verse 11. Okay, let's have somebody read that. Jake, are you there? No? Okay, go ahead, Jake. 11, Daniel 10, verse 11. How do you know if you're there, if you didn't know what verse it was? Oh, okay, all right. You're close. I'm near. To, I'm near whatever verse you're going to say. Okay, go ahead. He was a man greatly loved by God. Of all the things we want to say about Daniel, that's the one that probably counts the most, right? And it's from God himself. Daniel, man, greatly loved by God. Daniel was of the royal family. Some believe that he was uh, either part of Zedekiah's or related to Hezekiah. He was part of that royal family. And that may have put him in a place where it was possible for Daniel to be the king of Judah, especially the way we were rotating through kings uh, at the time. Uh, can you imagine how it would have been if Daniel had succeeded Josiah to the throne? And one aspect of Daniel and his companions that comes out often in this book is their character and their convictions. We see that a lot in the book of Daniel. Convictions are those handful of truths which you are willing to die for. Right? Those are the things that you stand on and say, no matter what, this I stand for. This is, who, this is important. important enough to die for. They are the hidden foundation on which all the all of our lives rest. And when they're tested, then it will be demonstrated just how much we truly believe those convictions, right? We all have convictions about things. But boy, we don't really know how 
convicted we are about them until when we're tested, right? Until we have to make a stance that's going to cost us something to say we truly believe in that. And Daniel and his uh, contemporaries, uh, he kind of hung out with some pretty great guys, if you think about it, right? The guys that he was hanging around, his contemporaries were all the major prophets, or at least they're in that same period of time. So think about that period of time at about 6th century here, because you had uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Right? They're all in, real close to each other within 100 years uh, span here. So where does Daniel fit in with these other major prophets? If you're kind of looking at a timeline, Isaiah ministered more than 100 years before the Babylon, Babylonian exile. Okay, So he was about 100 years before the exile. And then he ministered to the same people, basically, but he ministered in Judah, and Judah was in the southern kingdom. Right? Yeah, Judah in the southern kingdom, Israel in the northern kingdom. That's where Isaiah was primarily. Then there was Jeremiah. Jeremiah came sometime after Isaiah, and Jeremiah proph- prophesied during the last five kings of Judah's history. Okay? He was the prophet right at the end, and he saw things that Isaiah was talking about were going to come to fruition, right? Jeremiah was there. He saw the captivity as could happen at any time. Okay, that's what Jeremiah's role was. And then there is Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied to a group of exiles in Babylon. And Ezekiel's message tends to be hopeful, and the closing part of his book presents the glories of the kingdom to come, giving hope to those exiled people. So you have Isaiah talking about, boy, you're going to get in captivity. You're going to get in captivity. You keep doing these things. God is going to, you know, God is going to move in judgment. Then you have Jeremiah going, yeah, those things Isaiah was talking about 100 years ago, that could happen any day now. The, the stage is set. All the things have fallen in that God said were going to happen. It could happen any moment, and then it did. And then you had Ezekiel, who was up in the, uh, <clears throat> with his folks in exile, saying, hang in there. You know, this is God's judgment, right? But hang in there. God has not forgotten you, right? And then, uh, so moving along a timeline, you got Isaiah 100 years before the captivity, Jeremiah imminent at the captivity, Ezekiel during the captivity, but ministering to the exiles, and then there's Daniel. Now, Daniel is ministering during the exile, just like Ezekiel, but not from the vantage point of moving among his people, but from the vantage point of being a Hebrew with the prominent position in the midst of the world powers of Babylon and Persia. That's where Daniel was. So let's talk about uh, the authorship. Okay, Who wrote the book of Daniel? It's not a trick question. Okay, If you were to read enough commentaries, which I don't know why you would do. Anyway, if you read enough articles, there's a lot of debate about who actually wrote Daniel. I mean, probably half of the commentary, I was just talking to Jake about this the other day because he's taking a class on Daniel, so he'll be uh, fact-checking me all day long after after the sermon. So uh, the thing with Daniel is the is how contentious the debate is about who actually wrote this. And so I'll just give you some I'll give you some facts here. All right, the authorship of the book of Daniel has been disputed vigorously, and throughout the book, Daniel clearly identifies himself in the first person. I Daniel. I let's look at a couple of those. Daniel chapter nine, verse two. 
Okay, let's have somebody read that. Daniel 9, verse 2. Not you, because I know you're not even near chapter 9. Okay, Daniel 9, 9, verse 2. Go ahead, Dixie. Okay, you know, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but when a prophet writes, I, Daniel... I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking he is, all right? That's who he is. Now look at verse 20, uh, same chapter, chapter 9, verse 20. Let's have uh, somebody else read that. Okay, Eric, go ahead. And then we're going to read chapter 10, verse 2, for somebody who wants to get there ahead of time. Okay, Debbie, I'll do that. All right, Eric, go ahead. Yeah, so while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, okay, those are all first-person pronouns, right? I, 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 me, me, my, my, my. Ten, chapter 10, verse 2. Okay. I, you know, again, sometimes I think we overcomplicate the issue, doesn't it? I mean, that's just one facet, but I mean, that's what, that's what uh, the Scripture says. In fact, Daniel mentions his own name over 80 times in the book of Daniel. Okay. It's almost as if the Lord anticipated this controversy and said, Daniel, as you're writing this down, make sure you say your name at least 80 times. All right. And I mean, there's, there's only 12 chapters. So that's like almost what, seven times, almost seven times a chapter. Daniel, Daniel, I did. I was doing this. Okay. Uh, Ezekiel also comments on Daniel and Ezekiel, remember, is a contemporary of Daniel's. All right. So look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel is the book right before Daniel. So if you just got to go back a couple pages to your left, Ezekiel 14, verse 14, we see a reference here. And then again in verse 20 in the same chapter. Okay. So Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. Anybody brave enough to read? Okay, Ruby, go ahead. Okay, then go ahead and do verse 20 since it's basically the same thing. Okay, Noah, Daniel, Job. Daniel, Noah, Daniel, Job. He's talking about righteous men, right? But here we see him mentioning Daniel. So if we had a question about whether Daniel existed or not, or Daniel was some fictitious character, which is what the what those who oppose Daniel writing it are saying, he wasn't even real. But then you got other prophets identifying Daniel. Not only does he mention his, he's writing it in the first person, he mentions his name over 80 times. Now you got other prophets in the same time period mentioning his name. But for me, you know, here's... Uh, Ezekiel's, uh, so those are some of the reasons to not question Daniel's authorship, but the major one to me is that Jesus confirmed it. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 24. Incidentally, when we get a little bit later uh, into Daniel, Matthew 24 and 25, a couple chapters we're going to spend some time in when we're in uh, Daniel 7 through 12, because there's a a tie-in there. All right, Matthew 24, verse 15, Cindy. Okay. 
Okay. Well, here we go. That kind of does it for me. You know, the issue's over when Jesus says, when Daniel the prophet said this, uh, you know, Jesus confirms the authorship of Daniel. That's that's it. Stop. End period. Stop. Because if Jesus is wrong on the authorship of Daniel, if he's mistaken here, then he's not God, and he can't be the Messiah, and he can't be my Savior. But because he died on the cross and rose again after three days, proving he is exactly who he said he was, if he says Daniel wrote it, that's good enough for me. Sometimes, beloved, we just overcomplicate things. This is pretty straightforward. I know. I know. But for those who are a little more stubborn, there's other evidence, right? The Apostle Paul also believed in Daniel, right? He mentions things that Daniel wrote about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We don't have time to look at all these. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, talking about the, uh, the man of lawlessness, right? We see those things, which are terms from the book of Daniel. The author of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 33, refers to Daniel's life. 1 Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, 1 Peter 1.10 refers to Daniel's life as well. Daniel is included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, but sometimes people will look at that and say, ah, I don't know. Now, uh, the Greek Septuagint, that happened 285 years before Christ. Uh, and uh, before Greek was the common language. Okay. So 72 Jewish scholars got together, translated the Old Testament into Greek, making up the Septuagint, uh, which uh, the Septuagint means the 70, okay? the 70. So the book of Daniel was part of that. Now, you also have Josephus, the Jewish historian. He's so trusted that when archaeologists are excavating the Middle East, they'll read Josephus as he was a historian, a Jewish historian. He's so accurate that they find artifacts within inches of where he said they were buried. Okay? So, you know, for archaeological things, we look at them. Now, for biblical things, eh, you know, he's an extra-biblical source. So, I mean, he lends credibility to a lot of what was going on in the Bible from those who are need credibility outside the Bible. But he, has, he does have credibility, more credibility, I should say, in those people looking for artifacts in Here's what Josephus writes. He writes that the high priest Jaduathan met with Alexander the Great when he got to the gate of Jerusalem. And he showed him what Daniel had written about him, about Alexander the Great. That it already, they already knew that right that was who he was going to be. A Greek conqueror was going to come in. Remember the statue? Okay, we'll get to that. All right. He showed him what Daniel had written about him and the Greek empire Long before 332 B.C., remember, he's writing this in about, you know, 605, right? He's, he's writing it in the uh, 600 years. This is like 300 years after the fact. Somebody rushes to the gate when Alexander's army is there about ready to conquer Jerusalem and says, hey, hey, this is what our prophet said about that you. This is you. The Bible has you in here. And so he spared the city based on Daniel's prophecy. I'll give you one more. Sir Isaac Newton, uh, which is a, who's a great science scientist, he actually wrote more on the Bible than he did about science. Most people don't really know that about Sir Isaac Newton, but he was a profoundly, uh, deeply religious man. And uh, he said the following about the book of Daniel. To reject Daniel is to reject the Christian religion. 
So Daniel is the most distinct in order of time, the easiest to understand. I don't know about that. And therefore, in those things which relate to the last times, he must be made key. Virtually no one really put forth any question about who wrote Daniel until about 2,000 years after the book was written. So just kind of bear that in mind. The only reason I'm spending this much time on it is because there's so much pushback about Daniel, and for a lot of reasons, but none of them are biblical, and none of them really stand on much ground. Uh, so, and those that push on against Daniel, who do you think are those who would push the hardest about Daniel and say, I don't know if this is accurate? Yeah, well, it's those who question the integrity and the inspiration of Scripture, specifically miracles and prophecies. Okay? Why would they do that? Because the book of Daniel is so accurate. They cannot believe that it was written 600 years, right, before Christ. Talking about things. He's, Daniel prophesizes about empires that weren't even empires. They weren't even really countries. You know what I mean? They, were, they weren't even nations that people thought would be on the world stage. Rome? Now, we knew that Rome was, you know, when Daniel's talking, I mean, uh, when Daniel's prophesying about Rome, nobody, Rome wasn't even a thing, right? Greece was a thing. Alexander the Great was conquering two-thirds of the known world, all by the time he's age 35. Slacker. Many have argued the book is actually fictional claim which rests on the rejection of miracles and prophecies. So they attempt to get around the obvious uh, historicity, or in other words, the historical facts of the book by claiming that no one can predict future events this accurately. So it must have been later, and then somebody went back and edited it. That's what they say. But since several of the prophecies in Daniel and their fulfillment could not have taken place by the second century, which is when most people... I shouldn't say most people. That's when most of those critics think it was written like sometime between 50 and like 150 uh, AD, right, or BC. But it doesn't line up because some of those things uh, that Daniel is talking about by, by that time hadn't even happened yet. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Another pushback is about the canonicity. In other words, should Daniel be included in the prophets? Because in the Hebrew Bible, originally, they were uh, placed, Daniel was placed where? Does anybody know where Daniel was placed originally? In the canon, in the canon of Scripture. In the Old Testament, where did, uh, where did they originally place it? Let's see if he's paying attention. Yeah, so it's put in the writings, or the kitium is what they call it in Hebrew. As the writings, so you have uh, other books are in there too, like Ruth. Esther, right, and Job, okay, then you have the Psalms, right, the Proverbs, right, all of that, those are all kind of, kind of, that's how they were in there, so people would go, aha, see, it wasn't originally even in with the prophets, so, uh, but why would the Jews not think of Daniel as a prophet when Ezekiel calls him a prophet? Why would they push back so hard about having Daniel, considering him a prophet? Well, the reason is, is because his prophecies are so exact. 
specifically about the coming of the Messiah, the 69 weeks. Right? They had a real hard time with that because if you accept that Daniel was a prophet and he was prophesying about the Messiah and then you line that up with Christ's life, you got a real problem if you're denying the Messiah, right? So they go, ah, it's just kind of like a wisdom literature, you know, like, hey, we just kind of put it in there to talk about God, but it wasn't really talking about the Messiah. It's figurative language. Uh, in uh, this passage, uh, the problem with Daniel is 70 weeks, chapter 9. In this week, the Messiah will come to his people in the 69th week from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was in 445 B.C. 69 weeks are actually 69 years, okay, or weirs. Jesus did come as Daniel predicted and presented himself as king on the first day of the week of his crucifixion. If you have a, ever read a book called The Coming Prince by uh, Sir Robert Anderson, he actually does all of the math from a Jewish calendar, which is different than a, a Roman calendar, and shows that the day that Jesus walked in to Jerusalem in Holy Week is the first day of that week uh, of the... Uh, 69th week, exactly as Daniel had prophesied. He does it by the number of days and then works it out in the Jewish calendar. And that would have been the day that he would have walked in and they would have been saying, Hosanna. Praise God for that, huh? All right. Uh, so I'm running out of time here. I have a lot more. Okay, background. Here's what was going on at the time. Judas' last godly king was Josiah. So let me just give you a little background on what was happening. And Josiah brought about lots of reforms to return the people to the worship of the one true God. Okay? Yet his zeal for Judah and the Lord actually got him into a fight that was not his. And he was killed in battle by Pharaoh Necho, who warned him that he had not come to fight him. But he went out and fought him anyway and died. So Pharaoh, Necho of Egypt, he was going to fight Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon at Carchemish. And Necho was defeated. So now you have Nebuchadnezzar defeating Egypt. You have the Babylonians can, uh, defeating the Egyptians. So now the Egyptians were the world power. Now the Babylonians at this point are the world power as this is happening. So... Uh, Nico on his return right he, he on his return Nico on his return from the battle he sets up Eliakim as king of Judah that lasted about 3 months because then Nebuchadnezzar comes in fresh off his victory from defeating Pharaoh Nico and he removes Eliakim and he sets up Jehoiakim that'll be a quiz later all right this is about 605, and the first deportation takes place. How many deportations? Somebody know? Three? Okay. Okay, three. So here we go. How many? Okay. <laughs> okay. Years later, Jehoiahim rebels against Babylon, uh, the Babylon as, and uh, is replaced by Jehoiachin. Okay. Try and keep those two separate. Okay. The second deportation then occurs at that time, and Ezekiel's taken in that deportation. And then about three months, uh, Jehoiachin was replaced by Zedekiah, who rebelled in 586 and then brought about the final deportation of Judah. Okay? And that's where Daniel 
Uh, Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they lived at the, they went in the first deportation, but they lived at the time of the destruction of Solomon's temple and the carrying away of the kingdom of Judah to Babylon uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that. They saw a lot of big things happen biblically at that time. There were three different deportations of the inhabitants of Jerusalem from when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. Basically what happened is Nebuchadnezzar would conquer and then he'd put in his king from your people. They were called a vassal king, which means they basically had to pay tribute so that Nebuchadnezzar's army wouldn't come in and completely annihilate you. All right? But in the meantime, he would take whatever he wanted, each time taking a little bit more until eventually he would just purge the entire city. So the first time... He took the best people of the land, which were the royal family and the nobles. There goes Daniel and his friends, right? Taking the best of the best. The second was another group, and that included Ezekiel, probably what we would call upper middle class, if you will. They weren't the royalty, they weren't the best, but they were pretty well up there, well-connected, well-educated. The third and the last were all the rest of the people, except for some of the poorest. In uh, They were left to tend the land. Not that there was anything left, because they basically pillaged it all. And then a number of these people remained and rebelled and fled to Egypt, forcing Jeremiah the prophet to go with them. So, anyway. All right. Uh, I'm not going to get into the writing. I want to cover the key themes in the time we have left. Okay? Here's a key theme. What do you think is the number one theme in Daniel? It's mentioned over 13 times. Prophecy is one of them, but it's uh, not the number one thing. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is really the number one theme in the book of Daniel. Okay? The overriding message of Daniel is the sovereign hand of God over human affairs. And Daniel clearly centers on the sovereignty of God. Matter of fact, he'll say things like, God handed over Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeated this army. He says, God handed them over to them. In other words, God is the one who did it. God is the one who took care of this. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, governments over it all. You're going to see that repeated again and again and again. Uh, Perhaps more than any other Old Testament writer, Daniel clarifies for us this basic propositional truth. There are no heroes in the Bible except God. Okay? What do I mean by that? God is behind it all. God is sovereign over it all. Okay? He wrote at a time when Israel had every reason to think that all of the old promises had been broken and all the old covenants were shattered. I mean, think about that, right? Temple, God, right? Uh, the temple elements, gone. The best of the best, the, the royalty in the family, those they had pinned their hopes on, gone. I mean, gone, gone, gone. I mean, they're, and they're living in a time thinking, Lord, I know it says here, right? But man, it does not look like that's what's going on in the world. Can you all relate? Paganism had tried, had twined, had twice triumphed. Assyria conquered the northern and then Babylonia, and the cause of the Jews was clearly lost. Satan empowers all the kingdoms of this world, right? First John five nineteen. That's Satan, right? He's the one who's 
of the God of this world, uh, this age. Jesus Christ came in the world to dismantle Satan's earthly kingdom and his authority, 1 John 3, 8. Uh, and since all true power belongs to God, any human kingdom not submitted to God is in opposition to him. Daniel actually charts for us the rise and the fall of earthly kingdoms and the establishments of, of governments. He basically says, here's what's going to happen. How's it, how do we know it's going to happen? God has decreed that this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Uh, all right, I'll skip my illustration. Theme number two, obedience. Obedience. J. Vernon McGee says that Daniel was a man of obedience. Here was a man who stood on his own two feet and had the intestinal fortitude to speak God's word. We spent a lot of time talking about worldliness, three, three weeks. Daniel was a man who lived it. Talk about being in a place where people hate you for just who you are and who want to kill you for your stand for God. Daniel... Daniel's who we should look to if we're having trouble struggling with the world. And Daniel also shows us you don't have to compromise with the world. I mean, he's very, very, I mean, it's a tremendous lesson. It gets to it right away in the first couple of chapters. We're going to see that right away. Uh, Daniel, the nature of our faith uh, marks every devoted believer for the lions or the fire. And in Daniel's case, both. Okay, And... Uh, Daniel will show us how to live in Babylon and how to do that successfully. It shows me how to live for God in this evil age, and it tells me what it will be like when I live with God in the golden age. It shows how a man who sees the future can live to the glory of God in the present. In other words, by knowing the end of the story affects how we live today. And Daniel teaches us not just how to survive, but to thrive. And his faith, obedience, and faith will show that God will raise up godly men and women to positions where they can direct the leaders of any government. Daniel was one of the godly men in David's lineage. He was well-educated in scriptures, possessed a deep, trusting faith in God. He was one to firmly stand on the truth of the word. And those convictions were solid in his mind. He would not deviate. He would not compromise or invent any excuse to violate what God had said. And because of this firm faith in the true God and his faithfulness and obedience to the word of God, God used him in positions of great authority to affect what he wanted to get done. Here's key theme number three, prayer. You're going to hear a lot about Daniel and prayer next coming weeks. Okay, Daniel is a man of great prayer. Uh, chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 10, and, and sprinkled in between. Okay, Just uh, a lot, a lot of prayer. Uh, prayer got Daniel into the lion's den. How about that for answered prayer? Huh? Daniel was a man of great prayer. I won't, again, spend a lot of time on that. Here's the fourth one, of course, uh, mentioned earlier, uh, prophecy. Uh, Daniel was a man of prophecy. Um, but prophecy can also be seen as God's omniscience. Sometimes we lose track of that, right? This is someone, this is, uh, someone speaking right through the ministry of the Holy Spirit telling you what God has already determined is going to happen. <laughs> okay? So we often think on the prophecy side, oh, oh wow, you know, that person can speak into the future. Well, 
How were they able to do that? Because God has illuminated for them or had them speak about what he has already determined that future will be. And so we, we sometimes get caught up on the prophetic side and we forget that it's rooted in God's all-knowing character and his sovereignty. The two kind of go hand in hand. So, uh, all right. Uh, and then also, if you ever get a chance, this is just for, uh, just for a side uh, comparison for you. Look at the life of Joseph and the life of Daniel. Just, uh, just kind of their lives in general. For example... Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Daniel was carried away as a captive. Uh, Both were taken where they did not want to go, but it was part of God's plan. Joseph was sold to a high government official, Potiphar. Daniel was placed in training to be an advisor to a king. Uh, Both were put in a house where there was an influence or chance to influence the government. Both were men of integrity and conviction. They would suffer for doing what was right or godly. They both had dreams concerning the future. They both could interpret dreams by the revelations of God. They both would have influence over great leaders of their time. They both had high positions of authority. There's a lot in comparison between Joseph and Daniel, actually. And God uses them both because of their great character and their faith and their obedience. Uh, Over half of the prophecies of the book of Daniel have already been fulfilled. You may not know that. Literally, by the way, not figuratively, not spiritually, literally. Okay? And if you follow current events, world economics, Middle East, scenarios have much to do with what is written about in the book of Daniel. Even more as the day of the Lord approaches. And the world stage, in my opinion, uh, is set like never before for the coming of the Antichrist. And Daniel is going to tell us about him. Uh, Again, Daniel is always under attack for one reason. And that's because his prophecies are so exact. People just, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in miracles you don't believe in the supernatural, and you don't believe in prophetic events, you're going to have a hard time in the book of Daniel because it's amazingly accurate. Okay, there we have it. Not an exhaustive introduction, but enough to whet our appetites for this fascinating book. Many uh, people are drawn to Daniel only because of chapter 7 through 12. But there's so much more to Daniel. I don't want you to... I don't want you to like, oh boy, I can't wait till we get to chapter 7 so we can really dig in and find out what's going to happen in the end times. Because if you do that, you're going to miss so much about what Daniel has to teach us about how to live today in a world that has rejected God. How to live in a culture that can't stand you because you stand for God. And Daniel can teach us an awful lot about that. How do we live in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation? Daniel shows us Not just how to live, but how to thrive for God. That doesn't mean the second half of the book isn't important. It is. But uh, God gave all of that prophetic information to encourage us, beloved. Prophecy is given to encourage believers. To encourage us to remind us that God is in control. That God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, rulers and governments. And so when we see prophetic events, there are things telling Christians, these are the things God said would happen. And they 
will happen. Okay, we're out of time. I hope you're as excited as I am to dig in next week. We're going to begin chapter 1. If you want to get a little ahead of your reading, uh, you can look at the first seven verses. That's what we're going to do for next Sunday night. Okay, first seven verses. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly.